Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Actress Amelia Clark suffered two severe brain aneurysms in 2011 and in 2013, and has recently been talking about how much gray matter she lost in a result. She often mentions seeing her brain scans and wondering, how am I even functioning? This made us wonder as well, how much of our brains are we actually using? Today I'm here with Nancy Godala, a vascular neurologist at JFK Neuroscience Institute at Hackensack Meridian Health, to help us explain what happened to Amelia and help us understand how much of our brains are we really using. Thanks for being here, Dr. Godala. Oh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the topic of brains, I'd like to start by getting to know you a little bit more. So what brought you to becoming a vascular neurologist? From a neurology perspective, I always found brain fascinating. I always found, um, yeah, I, don't, I think it's the most enigma uh, of the organ. You know, we don't know much about, we don't know how it works, we don't know how it works. And also what gives us kind of who we are, our personality. It's such an important organ that we know the least about. So that obviously piqued my curiosity. Um, so ultimately, I, I guess that's how I ended up in neurology. Um, the vascular part has a lot to do more to do with strokes and um, and, and the reason for that is I think I have a personal um, vested in it. My husband had a stroke after I've become a neurologist. And um, even though I always liked stroke, I think that made me go uphold and do a fellowship extra training in vascular neurology uh, after what he sustained and at a such a young age. So that is more of a personal uh, decision that I made afterwards. Yeah, you have a personal stake in the game. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's start at the very top of brain aneurysms, what are they? So uh, in, in the best terms, the way I'd, I'd like to explain it is our bl- we have blood vessels, they're everywhere, and you can have aneurysms everywhere, but in, in terms of the brain, you have these blood vessels, and those blood vessels in certain people over certain you know dynamics in the blood as it's flowing through it can form bubbles. So instead of straight pipes, visualized pipes, instead there's some weakness in certain branches and it kind of form like a little bubble, like a little pocket. Um, and essentially those are what aneurysms are, little outpouching or out pockets uh, from the blood vessel walls um, that essentially because their out pockets, they're weaker than a regular pipe is. And that's what an actual aneurysm is. And you can have them anywhere in the body, but in terms of Amelia Clark, it was in the brain. And are there any causes to these pockets or risks, risk factors? Yes, absolutely. So for Amelia Clark's, for example, I'm not really sure about her medical history, but um, she was a female and that's that could be a risk factor for sure. Uh, pregnancy. Um, anything I would think about that will add pressure on the blood vessels. So high blood pressure is one. Um, certain drugs that uh, you know directly affects the blood vessels can also uh, do it. Family history could be genetics. Uh, some people are just more predispo- uh, predisposed to making aneurysms than others are. Uh, smoking. So those are the big ones that definitely stand out that could certainly predispose you. 
to having aneurysms. What about stress? If it leads to you having high blood pressure, maybe, yeah. So, um, or you bearing down. So I think one of the connections that are made, uh, when you're bearing down, like when you're lifting weights, like Emilia Clark, her first aneurysm, it bled and she was working out at the time. So mm-hmm. I can imagine she was lifting weights or doing something like that, like uh, that kind of um bear down and that can have made it burst for example so things like that can certainly you know weaken the blood vessels over time to cause them to um, form what about some symptoms so amelia mentioned how her brain aneurysm felt like excruciating pain almost like an elastic band that snapped in her head and an enormous amount of pressure do all brain aneurysms feel that way when they burst so remember it's a balloon if the balloon burst it's going to cause and that's actually a very classic hallmark of a brain aneurysm that ruptures or bursts it causes this unbelievable headache we we have you know the phrase we say is this the worst headache of your life is it the worst headache of your life and they the usually the patient's like absolutely no doubt then you're like "Uh oh we need to make sure we need to get a casket and we need to know for sure what it is. So she described it exactly like she had this massive headache. It was a tight band. She was nauseous, which also you'll get with it with the worst headache of your life. She started vomiting and then she kind of passed out. So all things you will get when the aneurysm ruptures. If you just have an aneurysm that didn't rupture, you may have symptoms, you may not. Sometimes they're suddenly depending on the size, how big it is, um, if maybe it's leaking a little bit. So these are all other things that you kind of have to take into consideration for the unruptured aneurysms. It, depending if it's pressing on something, if the aneurysm didn't rupture, then you may have double vision depending on the location or a droopy eyelid also depending on the location. So that's a different story. But once they rupture, massive headache, nausea, vomiting, sometimes seizures even, or they pass out. So that's the classic symptoms that you'll get when they rupture. It almost reminds me, not to get off topic or to be disgusting, but it almost reminds me of like a pimple popping. Yeah, uh, that's not disgusting. I'm a doctor. I like disgusting <laughs> stuff, so that's a different story. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, in, in, in a non-satisfying feeling because it's in the brain. So. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's almost like that. It's think of a balloon and that's filled with water and you're kind of like, poof. And it's, it's, you know, not to make it so medically jargon, but like when an artery pops is different than when a vein pops. So because a vein is more lax, artery is like a pumping, you know what I mean? It has a lot of, you know, blood flowing through it. So it gushes out and the brain just can't handle that. So it starts getting this massive headache because it's just like there's all these other things there that were not supposed to be there in your skull. So you start feeling it. So y- you'll end up in the hospital if God forbid, uh, you know, aneurysm rupture because it's just not supposed to. So then once you get to the hospital, what does the treatment look like? Uh, it's very involved. Um, and as you know, if you've read with Amelia Clark, um, she really had what we usually typically see um, the first one when when she had it she got a cat scan they found out that she had this uh, hem- what we call a hemorrhagic stroke or a subarachnoid hemorrhage which is subarachnoid hemorrhage is what you the ruptured aneurysm causing the bleeding around the brain so the brain is not damaged more like injured at that point um, 
and then then you have to go fish for the aneurysm and find it right so you have to do some blood vessel studies uh, sometimes you have to go through the groin to look for it uh, to find it and then after that you have to think about fixing it because you don't want it to bleed again right mm-hmm. so all that hap- has to happen um in a very timely manner and, and in a very urgent manner um so Typically, you get the CAT scan, you put them in the ICU, you monitor them, then you take them to the angiography suite to look for the aneurysm. If you didn't find it yet, if you found it, see if you can uh, coil it. What that means is they're going to go through the groin. That's a long Not way away. Disgusting. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's a distance, but, you know, we kind of, you know, we kind of have the surgeons to do it and they like it and it's pretty cool. And actually, it's minimally invasive because those patients, you know, recover much quicker because it's just a small incision um, and they go up all the way to the brain past the past the heart and just put little tiny wires we call the coils like tiny wires to kind of like clot off the aneurysm uh, so that it doesn't bleed anymore and eventually kind of withers away through time um, that, but then after that because there's blood in the brain and remember artery gushes out a lot more blood um, you kind of have to still monitor them for a few weeks because sometimes the arteries can clamp down and that can cause strokes. That's the part that we're scared about. So after we treat them, we usually keep them in the ICU. We monitor them, make sure they don't have any signs of strokes and, and things of that sort to make sure they stay okay. And I believe she had a, a very similar course in 2013. Was it the first aneurysm, I think? 2011 was 2011. her first, You're and right. then the 13 was her second. So in 2011, she ended up going to a more comprehensive center, and they transferred her there, and then when they did that, they actually went through minimally invasive through the groin uh, and coiled it as well. But they did find out when they were looking that she had a second one. So that was, remember I said, a lot of the time, maybe there's family history in her particular case. Uh, if you have one, the fact that you have another one, also, that means that second one may actually rupture. Chances are higher. So right. she she had the writings on the wall, unfortunately, for her. So that's why they had to watch it like they were supposed to. And it's almost a blessing, I guess, in a weird way that they found the other one. So this way they were able to repair to and monitor and yes, all that yes. kinds of stuff. Absolutely. A lot of stuff that I was reading, too, it, it almost seems like stroke and brain aneurysm kind of went hand in hand together is there you know a big difference between the two yes so in in the if we separate them um there's different kinds of strokes and hemorrhagic stroke is just a subset the stroke is the umbrella term and then there is uh ischemic stroke which is the lack of blood flow to the brain so that's ischemic stroke and then there is the bleeding stroke which is the hemorrhagic the bleeding stroke that a subset of it is a subarachnoid or the, the ones from aneurysms mm-hmm. is a subset from that. So it's kind of like an umbrella term, a subset within a subset kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, you know, if you look at it in a certain way, the mortality with subarachnoid hemorrhages or aneurysmal bleeds um, is can be quite high. Uh, it's actually 20% before you even make it to the hospital because wow. of how significant it is. So, you know, she suffered a lot. That was quite serious what she's went through um and i think that's why she's very much advocating for it knowing all that uh which more power to her i'm so glad that she did that because i don't think people realize um how significant it can be right um and like i said it affects women and some of them you know pregnancy was a risk factor we've had we've had postpartum women that come in with 
you know, these kind of aneurysmal bleeds and they left the baby at home and now they have to go for surgery. It's, it's, it's quite a big intense. deal. Yeah, it's quite intense. And, you know, they have to be in the hospital sometimes for a month at a time. So it's not an easy thing and you kind of have to handhold them through it. Um, so in a way, stroke, when you think stroke, you kind of think of the lack of blood flow, but this is a different subset of it. Um, and even though the mortality is very high initially, you kind of have to think the brain, the brain didn't die. It kind of just got injured. That's the reason why she also advocates for brain injury so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so the good thing about injury is that it didn't die. It just needs more time to heal. And I'm glad you mentioned that because she keeps talking about how she sees her brain scans and how she men- and then she from that she mentioned that quite a bit is missing. Does that mean that parts are no longer there or maybe they just don't work the same? I think what happens is because she had two surgeries um, the fir- for her first aneurysm, she had the minimally invasive one. With the second one, she ended up having to open her brain up, uh, open the skull up. So that was the open approach. Um, a lot of the time that caused some damage, there's certain areas that damage what happens is the brain kind of shrinks a little bit or those areas shrink a little bit. I don't, th- so I guess you could say missing, but I don't think like a whole entire part is taken out. So I think it just meant shrunk a little bit because it did sustain quite a significant amount of damage because you're lucky when you are able to survive one one bleed, aneurysmal bleed, she survived two. So I would imagine maybe a little bit of brain shrinkage maybe, that that's what I would call it. So then that goes into our overall question of how much of our brain do we actually use? Because she seems to be functioning totally fine. So you have to take a few things into consideration. She's young, um, she's determined, and there's concept of things like neuroplasticity. When a part of the brain gets injured or dies, even in the strokes where there's lack of blood flow, other parts of the brain kind of pick it up. We call it neuroplasticity. So, and that's the reason why rehab is so important um, and, and reteaching certain things because even though you're thinking, oh, I just need to relearn these things, but you're also having certain other neurons or other parts of your brain relearning these things over so that you're able to do it like normal. So I'm sure she had went through rehabilitation of things of that sort. So she probably uses a good amount of her brain. We all use a good amount of your brain. And the reason why I could say this so comfortably, if you think of like functional MRIs where you have your MRI machine and tell you move your pinky or Mm -hmm. move your left hand and you find out all these parts of your brain light up for such a simple task. And I'm like, you know, and then I started thinking about it. I was like, that's a lot more than 10% just to move a pinky. So I, I, can, I can't imagine that that's um, really true yeah. when you think about that. Um, think about it to keep our bodies functioning, you know, like our GI system or our heart beating and all that stuff. There is still innervation from the brain. Those have to still be working just to sit down and rest or yeah. and so blink and exactly things like that. The, the random thing. So um, we, we use quite a lot. We really, really do. And I think we need to give it more credit than we think. Absolutely. I mean, there is a huge, I I was reading a huge amount of myths and myth-busting things about the brain that I sent over to you. And one of them was 
do you only use 10% of your brain? Because a lot of people, for some reason, think that. No, I think it has to be shows or media. Like, maybe sometimes I think it's, if we use 100%, then we're going to start, like, telepathically doing things or things like that. Like, this is what I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, 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 we use quite a lot. And maybe we should be using more. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on... um, Depending on what we're doing, but you know, we use quite a lot. I think 10% is just a complete myth. We probably use a whole lot more just to do simple tasks. And you know what? Let's not take it for granted. Let's just appreciate it for what it does because it certainly does a lot. Yeah. And um, in a way, it's kind of, you think about those when you see those patients with stroke, when they actually relearning things, they were like, we used to not think about doing these things. Now I have to relearn it. And then you kind of wonder, we just don't realize how much our brain really does. And hence, I think that's what the 10% came from. People just don't realize how much it's actually involved in certain movements and certain thoughts, all that stuff. Absolutely. Or, you know, certain things you do have to think about doing. And then there's certain things where it just kind of happens. Yes, yes. Think about it. Like, we we think we only think when we're like, okay, we're doing a project or, Mm -hmm. you know, preparing a presentation. But that's only what's on your forefront you know you you, when you're eating and and reading you're just concentrating on the reading part but you actually have to move your hand to bring a sandwich to your mouth right at the same time you may be tapping your leg and don't even realize it so you're actually doing maybe four or five different things all at the same time without realizing so i think this is why we just don't give it enough credit the brain um which is i guess why it's so fascinating right yeah absolutely okay i'm gonna dive into some more myths if you don't mind sure sure So another myth that I found is, is it true that you get new brain wrinkles when you learn something? I think you get brain wrinkles no matter what. Um, Because when you're first born, you don't have as many. It's kind of like you get wrinkles when you're getting older anyway. So you might as well get some in your brain too. (laughs) Um, But so the way I would look at it is um, your brain needs a lot of surface area to to conduct what it does, to do what it does. And the way to increase that surface area is by making folds. And um, I think that was just a very general term of saying it, but you, when you're growing up, you're learning a lot, right? You're in school and, and, and all these things, and you're learning all these things, and that will require a lot of surface area. The way we could do surface area is by making folds to give more room for all the information that you're learning. So in a way, you're going to get wrinkles no matter what, but you're also learning. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So it's not a, it's not from one thing you're learning, but just over time you will. So it's a good thing to get wrinkles on yes, your brain. Yes, on your brain, just not on your <laughs> Nowhere else, yeah. just the brain. Yes, yes. Another one was babies exposed to classical music end up smarter. So I was actually looking at that when you sent it. I was like, because I thought the same thing. I was like, you know, just, you know, when I had my daughter, I was like, just blast the Mozart. Maybe something will happen. I don't know. <laughs> uh, nothing happened. I mean, she's still smart and all, but I got into genetics. So I think it's not Mozart per se. You could play whatever you like. And I think it just, it ends up being just part of stimulation. Um, you're teaching your brain, like learning new stimulation, things that it hasn't heard before for a baby. Right. Um, it kind of just, it, it helps the wiring of the brain because brain is very electrical. So I think it's more just to help with the stimulation, helping it hear things it didn't. It just doesn't have to be Mozart. It could be anything else. Um, so it's not necessarily true that Mozart make you smarter. I just think it helps with the stimulation, kind of like the same way they get attracted to bright lights mm-hmm. uh, because they're like, oh, what's that? Um, 
it's it's a s- same kind of concept. It just needed for stimulation and uh, engaging um, the babies and things of that sort. Yeah, some sort of noise. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes it's good to be language and words, so it'll help mm-hmm. them with their speech development. Um, all that is important to them, all that. Does alcohol really kill your brain cells? I certainly hope not, but um, <laughs> that's a different story. Um, small joke. But I think it doesn't, in in the long term, it depends on if you use it chronically. So I don't think if you go and have a drink, you're killing your brain cells. But if you're an alcoholic or if you're drinking every single day, it, it, it does, the chronic exposure of alcohol to your brain does suppress the brain a little bit and can cause certain parts of the brain to just not work as well over time. Remember we talked about brain shrinkage? Mm -hmm. Um, It's one of those things that chronic use of alcohol and chronic exposure of the brain to alcohol can have the brain shrink, particularly certain parts of the brain like the cerebellum, the the back parts that has to do with balance. Um, They're very sensitive to that and they could certainly shrink and atrophy and can cause balance issues and things of that sort. How can we improve our brain function? Some people were saying, you know, you could do crossword puzzles and word searches and all this. What are some ways we can actually improve our brain function? I I actually think crossword puzzles, um, mental stimulation is always key. Um, It is important. What I think what people don't realize is also exercise. So... For example, patients that are starting to have memory issues and things like that, one of the things we tell them is 30 minutes a day for five, six days, I need you to do aerobic exercise. And if you think about it, it makes sense because you're increasing the blood flow to the brain. If you increase the blood flow to the brain, they get all the nutrients they need and then it can function better. So hence the reason why exercise is also definitely important, physical aerobic exercise. Um, Same thing that has to do with, like you mentioned, the crossword puzzles, mental stimulation, um, word, you know, the word finding, you know, those where you find the words, I don't remember. Word search. Word search, yes, that's it. Um, Things of that sort to kind of keep you going. Believe it or not, people in their school, I know my daughter, when she's not in school, when she's home in summer and she's on her iPad, her brain turns into mush. So I constantly have to be like, no, we're going to do certain exercises, homeworks, just so that she continues to be engaged because kind of like anything else, brain is just a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it kind of situation. Um... Other things that I think people don't realize, a good multivitamin helps. Uh, Our brain needs B12, our neurons needs B12, those kind of vitamins. So a good multivitamin to make sure you're getting the appropriate vitamins that it needs um, is also very important. Uh, And a little amount of fat also helps because we need fat to insulate some of those nerves too. So those are the things I would say um, it's a good whole-rounded way of improving your mental function. And would that be the same type of prevention you would take for a brain aneurysm, say? No, because that's a blood vessel issue. So, yeah, exercise is a good idea in the tense to deal with stress and make sure your blood pressure is low. Um, it's that more for the actual brain. Um, for brain aneurysms, I think it's making sure your blood pressure is low is a good idea. I would obviously refrain from drugs uh, because those definitely can send the blood vessels into clamping down or becoming wider, and that could certainly um, weaken certain parts of it. Um, what other things? I think these are the biggest. Smoking is huge. We all we often think with smoking that it affects the lungs, mm-hmm. and we worry about lung cancer. But 
it actually causes a significant amount of damage to the blood vessels that we don't realize. And so the reason why they're also at increased risk of smokers for heart attacks and strokes, the lack of blood flow and stuff. So it messes with the blood vessels enough um, that I would definitely say I would refrain from that. Um, others I don't think you can control, like if you have family history or things right. of that sort. Right. And I think smoking, you mentioned, it... it it seems to be the common denominator of something to stay away from for f- with every single physician that we've spoken to. Right? Yeah. It's it's you know, if there's anything I guess you always take away is please don't smoke, right? Mm-hmm. It's um it's it's actually quite fascinating the amount of damage and the things it could do. Um but um it's a common denominator definitely for a lot of things. I agree with you completely. Anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Godala? No, no, I think I, I chewed your ear off enough. So thank you so much. No, we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.